you my philosophy of life. Do it to him before he does it to you. What do you want? Your gun. Beers and the fattest harbor in the world. Everything moves in and out, we take our cut. Edie! Father, who'd want to kill Joey? Who'd want to kill Joey? Now listen, you know who the pistols are. You're going to keep still until they cut you down one by one? Welcome back to the Essential Films Podcast, a podcast devoted to the discussion of the greatest movies ever made, or the Essential Films. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Mark Espinosa. How are you doing today? Doing good, doing good, man. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Now, there's a little bit of a delay between this and the last episode. Unfortunately, we just couldn't get our schedules to jive, so I do apologize uh, for that delay. Um, but you're, we are back. We promise we'll be back. Now, the last time we talked about the movie Vertigo... Uh, which we both highly recommended. Uh, and on this episode, uh, we're going to be taking on a very controversial film, or controversial film at the time, uh, or at least within film history, it's kind of a controversial film. Uh, and that is On the Waterfront. Absolutely. One of my personal favorite films since the first moment I saw it. I just, I fall in love with this film. And I know we're going to plug it throughout the whole episode here, but the Criterion's edition of this film is probably one of the best releases they've ever done uh it absolutely is it looks absolutely beautiful on blu-ray uh we highly recommend it we're, we're, we will probably be pulling a lot from this blu-ray uh during our discussion today um so i'm just going to go over some quick credits and accolades from the waterfront before we kind of get into the meat of it uh on the waterfront was released in 1954 it was directed by Leah kazan it was written by bud schulberg uh, and Malcolm Johnson, based on articles by Malcolm Johnson, I should say. It stars Marlon Brando, Carl Malden, Lee J. Cobb, Rod Steiger, and, of course, Eva Marie Saint. 
Uh, and uh, it was very uh, well awarded at the time. It won multiple uh, Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Brando, Supporting Actress for Eva Marie Saint, Best Director, Screenplay, Cinematography, Art Direction, Film Editing. It won uh, the motion pic- Best Motion Picture for the Golden Globes, as well as the Actor and Director and Cinematography, and picked up a few BAFTA nominations as well. Uh, it has uh, been highly... Uh, regarded in the American Film Institute uh, and also the National Film Preservation Board as well. So this is a basically an all-time classic. Uh, it is highly regarded as one of the kind of the canon films, and uh, as far as the kind of films that you know everyone should be watching. Um, so before we kind of get into the meat of it here, uh, what when did you first experience this film? Okay, so. For me, the first I've ever heard of this film was from a book. Not the one you bought me, but there was another book that I was kind of referenced when I first started getting into films in college. Was I think it's called 1,000 Films to See Before You Die. I think the one you got me is like similar if it's the same version, but I could uh, future edition. But that's how I first heard of the film because I'd, I'd flip through the book and I'd see all these movies I never heard of, you know, like, uh, uh, for example, um, Amadeus, I first heard of through that through that book and a few others as well. And I on the waterfront caught my eye. And then just as I was like flipping through, you know, Turner Classics uh, lineup, this is about uh, four or five years ago, I think, maybe six years ago. Um, I saw on the waterfront, so I set my DVR, and that's how I saw it for the first time. I saw it on I re- a DVR recording off of Turner Classic Movies, and I was immediately, immediately blown away by it. Yeah, I I actually experienced this film. Uh, you know, it, it is kind of you, know, you saw it on uh, Turner Classic Movies, right? So I I saw it in a film class in college. Um, it was part of kind of a film history course, uh, and we'll get into why it's kind of an important movie in film history. Uh, I, I I we watched it, you know, probably on you know, <laughs> I went to college in the late '90s, early 2000s, so I watched like a, a VHS copy, you know, projected in front of a you know. 200 person you know college classroom so probably not the best conditions in which to watch the movie (laughs) uh but that being said i was completely blown away by it now the only you know and we'll get in a little bit uh into more of this in a little bit but the more uh the most I had seen of of Marlon Brando at that point in my in my life, you know, I was eighteen, nineteen years old, uh, was in the Godfather films. Right, and of course. That's I th- actually probably the only exposure I had to him. So uh, to me, he was like this, you know, old, you know, fat gangster looking type. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you know, even then, he wasn't even that fat or old in the in the Godfather movie. It was all makeup and, and you know, but but still, that 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 was my image of what Brando was. And then you watch this movie. And you're like, holy crap, look at this guy. Like, he was young, he was ripped, he was good-looking, he was an amazing actor, uh, and it kind of blew me away. And that's what I first kind of took away from the film the first time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and this was a film, too, that I saw before Streetcar Named Desire. So, like, this was also kind of like my first kind of glimpse at young Marlon Brando, a handsome Marlon Brando. And just like, you know, I was like, holy crap, this guy's, you know... This guy's pretty good looking, you know. He's like the guy I want to look like, look like, you know. So, um, and then like, yeah, like I said, it's it was a film that I saw before Streetcar, and then even Streetcar, I think he was even younger. I think this, that came out before this film. I believe it came mistaken. out a few years before, yeah. Yeah, so like seeing like these two Brandos, and then seeing like you know 
the Godfather Marlon Brando and the Superman Marlon Brando. It's like it's like two different Brandos and the Apocalypse now Marlon Brando is like different Brandos, like different different Earths Marlon Brando. You know, uh, I, I did forget I did forget that I had seen him in Superman as well. I forgot about that, but yeah, Superman and the Godfather were my only two exposures to Marlon Brando before this film, and yeah, so <laughs> it's quite a, quite a quite a difference there. Yeah. Uh, so, and it's really quite a difference if you ever watch uh, Last Tango in Paris, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Let, 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 let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> let's, let's talk about that some other time. Um, just, you won't, you'll never look at butter the same way again. Anyway, oh, yeah. um, so the On the Waterfront uh, is a film about uh, t- uh, Marlon Brando plays Terry Malloy. He's kind of a washed out uh, a boxer who, who, who now works for the crooked uh, Waterfront Union. Uh, in uh, is it New Jersey or is it New York? I think it's Jersey, right? It's it's Hoboken, New Jersey. Okay, it's Jersey, right? Uh, he works, you know, he works for the union. He's the Docker, part of the Dockers Union. Is run by a, a gangster named Johnny Friendly. Now Terry, kind of at the beginning of the film, uh, aids the uh, these mobsters in uh, killing a guy that was kind of going to rat out on. He's going to rat on the. Uh, on the mobsters, he didn't realize that was going to happen. He kind of thought they were just going to beat him up a little, and as he said, lean on him a little bit. Uh, but then, yeah. whenever he realized that they that they killed him, he starts to kind of develop this guilty conscience that kind of haunts him throughout the rest of the film. Especially as he, you know, tries to uh, kind of court the the dead the uh, the dead guy's sister. Um, and yeah. then, as the film goes on, he eventually kind of the, his guilty conscience gets the better of him and he decides to turn witness for uh for the you know local authorities and uh turn in Mr. Johnny Friendly to the local authorities and that that is the um that is the basic plot of the film. Right, that's basically the whole film in a nutshell. Um the uh I mean I don't know if you want to talk more about the plot but I do want to focus a little bit cuz being that it's set in New Jersey like like New York, New Jersey, that whole area, like it hits close to home for me. And I love, I love the uh, cinematography by Boris Kaufman here. And I remember them saying how Kazan didn't want Kaufman to like shoot New York the way that everybody else shot New York during this time. Like it's this glamorous, beautiful place. Like a lot of time, the New York that you would see in the background is like surrounded by fog or it looks very gritty and dirty, you know, not like your ideal New York. And that's, you know, that's kind of how it looks sometimes, you know, depending on what spot you're in, whether it's Jersey City, whether it's Hoboken, or anywhere on the harbor, you know, at nighttime, it can look nice. But like during the day, especially when the weather's kind of like foggy and all that, it kind of looks exactly like that. And I love that the grittiness that it brought to the film kind of matched the uh, the tone of the film as well. Yeah. And, and one thing we kind of should um, should should mention on top of that is that it, this film was pretty much entirely shot on uh on location um with especially on the <clears throat> excuse me especially on the docks and i believe that the all the interiors were real uh, locations they weren't they weren't a set you might right. be able to correct me on that but i'm pretty sure they were all real locations uh, every except for like maybe two scenes were on location everyone except two scenes were on yeah on location in hoboken and then i think they're like there's like two little scenes i think there's the one where it's the i'm the um, uh, could have been a contender scene and then yeah, the one where they the show side. the uh the boss of bosses near the end when he's testifying right like johnny friendly's boss that was not on location yeah Everything and that looks was. like a set too yeah yeah and, and yeah and the, the i could have been contender is obviously a, a set but everything else was um was shot on location in in uh 
in New York uh, in the winter, actually. And the winter, yep. In, in the, the winter. brutal and cold. You, and you can... You can even see, you know, a little bit in the uh, when they're out on the dock. You can even see their breath. So, like, it, it adds that kind of sense of realism to it. And that yes. was very uh, unusual for films to be shot uh, on location in 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 the fifties, especially for Hollywood production. Yeah, very pseudo documentary style too to this. You know, so that's that's what kind of added to the realism as well. Yeah, and and a lot of the uh, the dock workers in the film were also um, like real dock workers. real dock workers. <laughs> exactly. Like I think there was the one scene I think where um, like they called a Terry and they called a few other guys in like to work, and then you have the uh, Papa Doyle, you have a uh, Dugan, you know, and then everybody else surrounding those two actors are like real dock workers that are brought in as extras. <laughs> yeah, so it, it has that kind of that feel of authenticity to it, and you can kind of tell like. You know, uh, other than Brando and Rod Steiger and uh, um, uh, and all the other actors in there, you know, um, Lee J. Cobb and, and, and even... The Rousseau. Alpha Lee J. Cobb. Yeah. You got to see the Alpha Lee J. Cobb. Yeah, and Carl Malden. <laughs> when you take those guys out of it and just kind of look at the faces of everybody else, they just look like authentic, you know, like they belong in that world. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I just love that whole... Just though, just, this is a, a very... It's so funny. It's like it's a gritty looking film, but it's a good looking film. I just love the way this film looks. Like just that adds to the story. There's so many layers to that, and it just adds to the to the story that's unfolding. Um, so so I'm gonna let's get into a little bit of the history of, of the film. So uh, back in the 1950s, Aliyah Kazan was actually working on another version of this film uh, with the the famous playwright Arthur Miller uh, on a, on a movie called The Hook. Um, which was eventually eventually abandoned uh, because Arthur Miller's uh, kind of association with communism kind of killed the movie for Hollywood yes. executives. Right. Uh, because the studio wanted to turn it into like this anti-communist movie, and Arthur Miller was pretty much like, no, F that noise, and you know, kind of killed the project. But uh, Leah Kazan eventually moved on and did, did this version of the film with a writer named Bud Schulberg, who based the film on a series of articles about the waterfront unions uh, that was going on at the time. And I believe the, the articles were called On the Waterfront. Yeah, Crime on the Waterfront. Crime on the Waterfront, thank you. Uh, about and, and one of the cool things about the uh, Criterion Collection is that it, in, this, uh, in the booklet included in the Criterion Collection uh, edition of this film, uh, they reprint some of those articles of, from That's the right. time. So it's really cool to kind of... I, I haven't gone through and read all of them because it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of stuff to read through, but it is really... Really cool to just see the, um, and I'm flipping through right now, if you can hear the pages, but it's really cool to just see what, you know, what was going on at the time in real life. Yeah, they have a nice little supplement, too, on the disc where they have the author of, like, the, he authored this book about, like, the, the crime on the waterfront, they like the on the waterfront itself, the movie, you know, and the whole, like, aftermath of that. And they talk about the history and the crime boss that was involved, who, like, everybody's kind of based on and on the waterfront. So that's a very – I think it's about a 25-minute, half-hour piece. It's very, very interesting. For a history buff like me, I just ate that up. Yeah, so this was – you know, you bring up history, and, and it's, this is a very important film to the uh, to the history of Hollywood. We kind of alluded to it earlier, um, especially with uh, the the communist movement uh, – the anti-communist movement that was taking place in the 1950s. So let's, let's kind of get into this a little bit. Um, now, before we actually talk about this – I'm actually going to kind of go back and talk, go to the future a little bit and talk about the 1999 Academy Awards. You know where I'm going with this? I think so. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
the and this is really interesting because I think that this this happened right around the time that I had actually watched the movie for the first time. So uh, I so I remember learning about this movie in film history before you know and so the way like the 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 class worked is like one class you'd have like a lecture and then the next class you'd have a screening then a lecture then a screening lecture then a screening and it's funny because the way it worked out was that I remember learning about it on the water from ahead of time before I saw the film. And then, coincidentally enough, the 1999 Oscars were airing around that, around that time. And Aaliyah Kazan, who was very old at that point, mm-hmm. uh, was receiving a Lifetime time Achievement, achievement award, one of those yeah. kind of awards. And he got brought out on stage. And, um, you know, I think Robert De Niro was with him. Maybe Martin Scorsese was with him as well. But I remember very clearly he got brought out to the stage and, you know... Half of the uh, Hollywood elite in the audience was, you know, giving him a standing ovation, and the other half, not so much. They were just sitting there on their hands and just kind of ignoring it or just very visibly uh, uh, protesting it. Um, uh, I I don't, I can't, I don't know, I can't uh, name the people who were, you know, protesting it off the top of my head. I think I remember Nick Nolte. Very visibly not clapping for him. That's the most well, cool. I can remember. Nolte, so you guys wacky. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and it was funny because you know and and the way history paints it, you know, depending on how you look at it, he was either a a, a villain or a hero. You know, and and, and you can kind of and I don't think he was really either. I think he was kind of kind of both. You know, like not really a hero or not really a villain, but kind of just this guy who. At the end of the day, he was just kind of had to look out for himself. For himself, yeah. exactly. That's exactly where I was going to go with that. Like, here's a guy. Like, I mean, they talk about in the commentary that this kind of parallel, whether intentional or not, there's parallels between the Terry Molloy character played by Marlon Brando and Elia Kazan when having to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Right. So, so let's um, let's go back to in time a little bit. So, Kazan was actually a member of the Communist Party early in his career. Um, but he actually left the party because he just felt that they were interfering too much in the um, in his like artistic, you know, what he wanted to do with like stage productions and things like that. So he just left. He kind of he kind of agreed with like the progressive things uh, about uh, about the party. But then whenever they started to kind of exert too much influence, he get he really didn't like that. So he left the the party. But he still kind of liked concepts of communism, right? Um, he, he, he claims you know, he claimed up until his dying day that he wasn't pressured to testify, but he also maintained that he would, that if he had to do it, he'd do it, he'd do it over again. So basically, um, he, he, he was called to testify and he named names. Uh, he named people that, you know, uh, and the thing is, is that the people he named were people that had already been named. So he wasn't really outing anybody, but to the, like the progressives and the liberals at the time, it doesn't matter that he wasn't outing people. It was the fact that he kind of quote unquote took the cowardly way out. And a lot of people, what even what what was even worse is that like pretty much following that, he had like this very fruitful period in his career where he won Academy Awards. You know, he uh, he he. He uh, he won Academy Awards. He got you know had big box office hits. You know he had um, you know on the waterfront. He had East of Eden, Baby Doll, Facing the Crowd, Splendid in the Grass. All these films that ended up being like very 
memorable uh, hits, and it was all after he t- he testified. So it's almost kind of like yeah. he was rewarded for it, and that's a lot of people kind of were pissed off about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, honestly, I kind of did a little bit of research on Kazan only kind of research for this film like i i have seen east of eden but his other films i haven't seen like those two films i think are like his most well-known it's this one and east of eden that like when i think of kazan i think of those two films so i mean but i do remember reading about the uh his whole thing of testifying before huak and uh you know and it's funny because it reminded me of um trumbo i had just seen trumbo recently too and uh like the kind of like the kind of a juxtaposition between Kazan who actually did testify and Trumbo, you know, who ended up being blacklisted. Right. Uh, and Trumbo's a very underrated film too. So you should, a little bit of a side note, uh, you should all go out and, you know, rent that movie because it was, it was actually pretty good. Very um, good. Uh, but yeah, and, and East of Eden's a good movie. Uh, I, I would recommend out of those I, I mentioned, I would recommend The Face in the Crowd because that was a very, um, it, it, it stars, um, uh, What's his name from the Andy Griffith? Oh, and Andy Griffith. So Andy Griffith. Andy Griffith. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he plays like this kind of. Uh, it's it's very relevant to like now. It's all about politics. He plays this uh, kind of uh, redneck hillbilly uh, uh, ex-con who gets turned into this political figure, and then you just see like the politics kind of slowly corrupt the guy more so than he was already kind of corrupted uh, as, you know, in the political system. And it's very, it's an excellent film. I, you know, I highly recommend it. I think actually um, probably my second favorite film of um, Kazan's after on the waterfront. He has some good ones too. Wow. But, uh, but uh, anyway, back to Kazan in the, on the waterfront. So yeah, so he named names uh, and, you know, he says that, Terry Malloy wasn't supposed to be him, you know, and the mob wasn't supposed to be like uh, communists, you know. But come on, the, <laughs> you know? the parallels are there. It's like, <laughs> I mean, come on. So I mean, so as I said, I learned about the film ahead of time before I watched it in this film history class, and I mean, that's basically what our professor had taught us was that, you know. Basically, this was a film kind of where Kazan was being an apologist and he was kind of writing himself into Malloy and and and, and this and that. Um, so I kind of went into the film with like this preconceived notion, you know, because, uh, you know, when you're studying film history, you kind of, you know, the history books kind of side with the 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 kind of the the screenwriters and the filmmakers that were persecuted, right? Yeah, right. So you kind of I went into this movie kind of going, you know what, screw this guy. He he named on his writer on his friends and this and that. I'm not gonna enjoy this movie. This is gonna suck. <laughs> and instead I ended up getting totally sucked into this film. And by the time, you know, he's standing up to Johnny Friendly at the end and, and you know in that fight at the, by the docks, I was totally I was I was in and I was totally cheering him on and everything. So you know, it, it just goes to show you how how good the film is that he manipulated my preconceived notions of it and just made me completely forget about him. Absolutely. And I hate to jump back and forth, but that last scene, man, it's funny because that last scene where he finally confronts Johnny Friendly, it's like it's predictable because, you know, like after they fight, he gets beat. He gets, you know, double teams and triple team or quadruple team, whatever it is. And then, you know, everybody's like, you know, if if, if, if Terry works, we work, you know, and. You know, you know he's going to get up. You know he's going to be able to walk in there. Like, you can see it coming from a mile away. But 
at that moment in the film, after you've just been through what Terry Malloy has been through the entire film, you basically see the growth of this character from this basically like dumb wise guy type of fella to like this guy who's kind of grown a conscience and now knows, you know, what he has to do, you know, and how to kind of redeem himself. You're just rooting for him to get up and finally, like, you're, you're just jumping out of your chair, like, come on, you can do it. Even though it's like the whole thing is like you're shot very, like, kind of hokily and kind of corny, but it works. It just works, man. Uh, it totally works, and uh, just a little bit of little bit of stupid trivia uh, among those uh, uh, mobsters that uh, that help beat up uh, Terry Malloy and are also just part of kind of uh, Johnny Friendly's gang. Uh, among them is Michael V. Gazzo, otherwise known as Frankie Five Angels from The Godfather Two. <laughs> uh, Fred Gwynn, who went on to later fame as Herman Munster. <laughs> and, oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, the future. Commissioner Gordon, Mr. Pat Hingle. Pat Hingle as the bartender, yes. <laughs> so, I just wanted to throw that out there because I thought it was amusing. I knew you were going to bring up Gordon, bro. Like I had it in my notes to like bring up Gordon if you forget. So <laughs> I had to. Come on, you know. Um. So, you know, let let's kind of get into some some of the the meat of this here. Um. It, I kind of went over the 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 kind of basic plot, but. Let's kind of go to what are some of your favorite scenes in this film? And I know uh, I could have been let, a contender. We know it was going to probably let, be let, let's kind of save that for last. Let's, let's leave so. that for last. Okay. Um, off the top of my head, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite scenes, other than that scene, is the scene where um, uh, Carl Malden tells Marlon Brando to go tell uh, Eva Marie Saint about you know his involvement with her brother's death, right? And then when you watch that scene, you can't hear him talk because the steamer is like, you know, on the soundtrack. It's like taking up the whole the whole sound. Like you, you just see reactions. You see him kind of explain, you know, I didn't mean to I didn't know they were gonna do that to him. I'm I'm sorry, you know, and you see her face, but you're hearing the burr burr of the steamer. And it's just so perfect because as I'm me personally, as I'm watching that scene and that sounds a very irritating sound. So I wince every time I hear it. But, like, my facial expressions kind of match um, Edie's facial expressions when she's hearing this terrible news that the guy that she kind of likes was involved with the death of her brother. So it's it's an awesome, awesome, awesome scene with the way, like, the, the sound came into effect and just how the whole thing was structured. It was I, I love that scene. Yeah, and I also love the fact that the very, you know, he, he Malden, uh, who plays uh, Father um, Father Barry, uh, he... he um, what I love about that is that when he, after he tells him to go tell, you know, to tell uh, Edie the 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 truth, you, there's just he's kind of and you see like you said you don't really hear what he's saying, but then you, you just see Carl Malden kind of in the foreground smoking a cigarette and just I just love the way that shot is set up. Exactly. And speaking <laughs> speaking of smoking a cigarette, I know I'm jumping back and forth now, but my other favorite scene is right after he gives a sermon on the dock after uh, after Dugan gets killed. And he's getting taken up on the on the lifts. And he starts like he puts a cigarette in his mouth, looking like a badass, as he's being raised up on the dock. And I'm just sitting there thinking that's like a perfect like mic drop moment right there. Like he he just basically shames everybody, you know, into like trying to you know wanting to come forward. And then he's getting taken up. He just smokes a cigarette, just looks up, and it looks like a badass. I mean, no, it's not I really supposed to be funny. It's not so really supposed to be funny, but when I watch it, I just laugh. No, I look so silly. I love that scene because it's, I mean, it's so, um, it, it, it's, I mean, it, 
it, it's it's so and then maybe I'm putting maybe too much into this. I, I don't I never heard like any. I don't think this was on the commentary. I mean, if it was, I just cribbed it and I didn't didn't realize I cribbed it. Oh, and maybe I'm reading too much into it. But what I love about that scene is there is Father Barry and he's in the like he's like in inside of the ship right in the bowels of the ship with all these you know containers of alcohol and he's being lifted up and it's like and like you said he's got the cigarette he looks like a total badass I love that shot. Because like here he is, he's in hell, and he's ascending like, back up to heaven. Because he needed to go <laughs> yeah. down to hell to try and bring these men back up. To, yes, uh, out awesome. of the depths of hell. It, I, I love that shot. I think it's amazing. Um, I think let's talk a little about Carl Malden. Carl Malden. I mean, people always talk about Terry Malloy. I'm sorry, uh, Brando. Uh, about uh, even Marie Saint. About Rod Steiger. But they never talk about Carl Malden in this movie. Probably because he's like, more of a supporting character. Right. And but he's like. I mean, he's the conscience of the movie, exactly. And uh, and that that speech is amazing. I and you know, like even though, and, and this isn't really his fault, but every time I look at Carl Malden, I just look at that huge nose of his because <laughs> it's so big. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like him and Brando have that weird nose going for them. That's just a distinguishing feature, you know. <laughs> yeah, and Brando has in this film like what looks like kind of prosthetics over his eyebrows. To make it look kind of like it's he, weird, like it's weird, like it has that one eyebrow that's kind of like shaved in the middle. It's like yeah. I don't know if that was like that and, was supposed to be part and, of his character and be like and, up one morning or screwed up. I'm sorry, you know, language one morning and just like ah, whatever. <laughs> you know, nobody's gonna care. So yeah, I don't know, but it, it just kind of seems like they 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 try to make him look like more of a caveman than like he actually was. You know. Because, um, I mean, he was a good-looking guy, so I can't think of, they kind of – it almost seemed like the filmmakers tried to make him look a little more beat up, you know, like a former boxer would look. Uh, exactly, exactly. But, like, man, Brando, like, that's the thing. Like, I kind of brought it into it earlier about, like, basically the whole film you see, like, the evolution of his character. Cause, and it's right – it starts right at the moment when he finds out that Joey Doyle gets killed. Like, like you said in the description, you know. He thought they were just going to lean on him. But no, they literally leaned him off a freaking building. <laughs> so, like, that's when you start to see, like, the, the beginning of, like, him growing a conscience, you know? And then it takes, like, kind of uh, his uh, Joey sister, Edie, to kind of, like, be the fulcrum in his change. But, like, I also love the uh, the whole interaction that they have, especially at the beginning when uh, he helps her escape from the church when the, with the whole beatdown going on. And it's also one of my favorite scenes. And, like, the way they just, their interaction with each other, the way, like, you start seeing Terry Malloy's playful side. Like, when she drops the glove, which is probably, like, an improvisation. She probably dropped it for real. And he picks it up, starts playing with it, starts putting it on. You see, like, his playfulness. And then you kind of see, okay, he's kind of a, he's kind of a sensitive guy. He's kind of a funny guy. You know, and it kind of gives them a reason to actually be talking. Because, like they said, I think, in the commentary as well, someone like her... You know, knowing his reputation wouldn't be seen with each other. But Kazan had to have a reason for them to even talk and look in each other's direction. And this was it. Yeah, it's funny. I was going to mention the the the, the um, glove scene next, and I actually have it playing in the background right now as we record this episode. And that's the scene that's on right now. And a couple of things I wanted to mention about that is that it look again, it doesn't because it's shot on location. It has that authentic feel to it. There's just kind of 
you know, you can see their breaths because it's like a cold, looks like a very cold day that they're walking around in. But then you just kind of just see random steam everywhere. Like, I don't even know where the steam is coming from. Like, what, what is the <laughs> steam that's like just, and it just looks like just this gritty, like, gross park. You know, there's, there's litter on the ground. Well, it is Jersey. You know? so. you know? <laughs> well, uh, hey, you said it, not hey, me. I, I live here, so I can You say said it. it, not me. <laughs> um, it's funny about the glove scene because everyone talks about the glove scene and it's a little bit of a, not controversy, but a little bit of a, uh, people kind of remember it differently. So Kazan... Uh, like was fond of telling the story that it was a improv on the set and that he just kept going with it. But even Marie Saint says it differently. She's like, no, that wasn't an improv. That was planned uh, because they rehearsed it. Um, and during the rehearsal, she dropped the glove and they thought, oh, we should do this in the take. And then the, and then that's what was filmed. So it depends on who you talk to. On who you talk to. You know, right? w- w- what the real story is. I kind of like, you know... Uh, I kind of like uh, Kazan's version of it. Kazan's me too. <laughs> but but I mean, even Marie Saints, like she's very insistent that it was planned. She's she, she's very anti-improv for some reason. Everybody loved Joey. Little kids to the old rummies. Did you know him very well? Well, you know, he got around. What did that man mean just oh, now? Oh, don't pay no attention to him. He's drunk, he's falling down, everything. He's just a Jew set that hangs around the neighborhood. Don't pay no attention. I'd better go now. You don't have to be afraid of me. I'm not gonna bite you. I guess they don't let you walk with fellas where you've been, huh? You know how the sisters are. Yeah. Are you training to be a nun? It's just a regular college. What is it? run by the, the Sisters of St. Anne. Where is that? It's in Terrytown. Where's that? Where's that? It's the country. I don't like the country. The crickets make me nervous. So how often do you get in here? Yeah, I haven't been here since last Christmas. We were going to have a Thanksgiving party. do up there? Just, what, study? Want to be a teacher. Teacher? That's very good, you know. I, personally, I admire brains. My brother Charlie is a very brainy guy. He had a couple of years of college. It isn't just brains, it's, it's how you use them. All right, yeah, I get your thought. You know, I've seen you a lot of times before. Remember uh, parochial school out of Paluski Street? Seven, eight years ago, you have... Had your hair, uh... Looked like a hunk of rope. You had wires on your teeth and glasses, everything. It was really a mess. I can get home all right now, thanks. Hey, look, no get sore. I'm just kidding you a little bit. I just mean to tell you that you grew up very nice. Thanks. You don't, you don't remember me, do you? Remember you the first moment I saw you? Why the nose, huh? Well, some people just got faces that stick in your mind. Remember you were in trouble all the time. Now you got me. Boy, the way those sisters used to whack me, I don't know what. They thought they was going to beat an education into me, but I foxed them. 
Maybe they just didn't know how to handle you. How would you have done it? With a little more patience and kindness. That's what makes people mean and difficult. People don't care enough about them. Ah, oh, what are you kidding me? Come on, I better get you home. There's too many guys around here with only one thing in their mind. Am I gonna see you again? What for? So I, I mean, so the Edie character, um, I mean, clearly she's she's there as like a, um, I don't know how to how else to put it, but kind of like a a, uh, a an like an angel kind of character that tries to guide guide Terry out of out of this life and into like you know a, a more uh, what's the word I'm looking for a more I guess more honest a, more honest more rewarding fulfilling life than than being this you know. Uh, this you know leg breaker for the mob, you know, uh, and you know it's just interesting that you know how do you get into that character's mindset? Like, yeah, I helped kill your brother, but I'm gonna try and like hook up with you at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah, that dynamic to me always felt kind of weird. And uh, I remember in the comments I kind of brought it up earlier, um, like Kazan really insisted that they have a reason to even be in the same room together you know like he, he really tried to break from the typical hollywood convention like oh like for example you see clark gable you see carol lombard you know those are the two like big hollywood leads you know you know they're gonna be paired together they're gonna fall in love you know here like he didn't want it to be like that he wanted there to be like a reason that they get together not just because oh she's the lead and he's the lead they're gonna get together you know they had to be like a realistic human reason because they are human beings after all so there has to be like a human reason why they're even talking to each other why they get together so um as far as her character though i love the scene you know i was gonna bring this up next actually where uh she's talking to uh to her father he's probably like, okay gotta go back to the sisters you know where you're gonna be safe and she's like, no, I want to find out what happened to Joey. And you kind of get to know more of her character because her father's talking about how, you know, you brought home this litter of kittens and the only one he wanted to keep was the one that had like six toes and was cockeyed, you know. So it kind of speaks to her character that like she sees like the flaws, like she sees past the flaws and into like the inner person of, of, of people, you know. Right, and but I mean, I, I do. I think it's a combination of that uh, of wanting to see what's going on with Brando, with Terry Mullo, I should say, and kind of being intrigued by him, and like being kind of this the first time she's like really been involved with a man in any sort of adult way. Like I don't mean like in a sexual way, yeah. but like in a you know unsupervised kind of way where she's just hanging out with this guy. And also trying to find out, she knows that he knows something about Joey's death, and she's also trying to get that information out of him as well. So like, it's this kind of intrigue and like the bad, like the bad boy kind of guy, but also the uh, the practical like he knows more than he's saying. 
Exactly. Exactly. And he, I think, is coming from it from a from a pure like, uh, you know, this is a hot girl, and I, I want to get <laughs> with that. Uh, but also a little bit of like the guilt of guilt, of, exactly. Of, of, because of, of if you remember the scene where like he's like t- hiding the uh, the chip or whatever they use, like to, that they have to give to the guy, the foreman to work. Like he's hiding it from her, and then the guy tells him, you know, that's Joey Doyle's sister. And that's when you see like the face, like, oh, you're 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 Joey Doyle's sister. So then he kind of like changes his tune with her, you know. So it's yeah. like it's that guilt coming back to him. Yeah. Um. So. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about the uh, the 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 acting clinic that Mr. Marlon Brando puts on in this film. Oh, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> um, well, well, Marlon Brando and Rod Steiger. I had to give him credit too. And Rod Steiger, but 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 let, let's let's first talk about Brando. Brando, uh, famously a uh, a a method actor, you know, yeah. and uh, someone who. Sometimes was was criticized, especially later in his life, for for the, the things that he would do on set. You know, he on on uh, on The Godfather, he would not remember his lines, so he'd have so Coppola had to put the, the cue cards everywhere, and they'd look around and read them that way. He did apparently the same thing on Superman and on Apocalypse Now. Uh, he gained way too much weight in later se- part of the seventies. You know, he he's very um, uh, kind of. Uh, had a bad attitude a lot of time, and you know, and all these things. So he kind of became this kind of character of himself. But when you just go back and you look at this film, and you look at this, and and for I mean, Streetcar is probably like the peak of his like complete manliness, right? But yeah. when you look at this film, and you look at like just kind of the raw charisma this dude has, just it just kind of just bleeds off of the screen. Uh, I, I, it's very hard to think of a, a contemporary parallel. Like he's kind of in his own category. Yeah, you can't really. There, there is no other Marlon Brando. There's only one Marlon Brando. Like you can't really, like you said, you can't compare him to anybody else. And it's just, you know, here's a guy who I think they even mentioned like kind of as a mini bio they gave in the commentary. Like he's here's a guy who hated doing stage acting because of the repetitors. He always liked to kind of improvise. Like he never did a take, you know, the same way twice. You know, he always liked to kind of change it up every time for every take. So that's why the stage was not for him. And the thing about this, too, is that, like you said, that the charisma that this guy has, the charisma that just oozes off the screen whenever he's, you know, whenever he's on it, um, you take this character who really starts out as a very unlikable guy in, in a way, and to kind of kind of turn that around, have the audience start rooting for him as the movie progresses, that takes talent, and uh, like you said, there's only one Marlon Brando that could that could pull that off. But not only just kind of unlikable, but he's just kind of dumb at the beginning. He's kind of yeah. this dumb goon. Like, how did he not realize? Like, how do you not know that that's exactly what they were going to do? Was kill Joy Doyle? You know what I mean? Like, what? what, what how did you not know that that's what was going to happen? And then, like, yeah, he's in the bar later with with uh, with Donnie Friendly. We'll get to Lee J. Cobb in a minute, uh, and and you know he's like, oh gee, I didn't you know no, and it, it, but he's playing that aw shucks kind of thing, that totally works, and you know he he goes through a lot of like different you know you know he gets he makes you believe that this woman, who is clearly outclasses him, would fall for this kind of dumb goon, right? Right. Based purely on the fact that he's just kind of charming. You know, even as dumb and brutish as he is, he's just kind of a charming guy. 
Yeah, I mean, like all it takes is confidence. You know that, like he said, with the charisma that he has, that guy also oozes confidence. So you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it was the same in in the 50s and 60s as it is now. Women are attracted to confident guys, and you know that's a. Uh, that's how he really comes off as a, this charismatic, funny, you know, kind of sensitive, confident guy. Um, and then, you know, with the, you know, we talked about earlier, he um, he tells uh, Edie about his involvement in Joey's death, but that was spurred on by uh, Barry's kind of sermon uh, on the dock. So, like, he 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 witnesses friendly killing uh dugan right like yeah. i mean or he doesn't actually friendly doesn't actually do it but it's clear that it's under friendly's orders right and after that he realizes like okay th- this is these are bad guys i feel guilty about joy doyle's death and he that's when he decides that he needs to actually talk to the cops um sorry go ahead no no no, no. go ahead uh and from that point on, I think that I mean he was good up until this point, but from this point on, from the rest of the film, it's like pure is the the, the level of acting here is just amazing. Um, and let's face it, let, let's get right into it. The the famous scene that everyone knows, even if they've never seen this movie, everyone knows the line, even if they don't know the name of the movie it's from. But I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Uh, and I'm not going to pretend to do it. I'm not going to do it because it's not. Uh, at, at this point, we'll play a clip. Wow. Okay. Okay, Dave. How much you weigh, Slim? And you weighed 168 pounds. You were beautiful. You could have been another Billy Khan. That skunk we got you for the manager. He brought you along too fast. It wasn't him, Charlie. It was you. You remember that night in the garden? You came down my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charlie. Okay. find you. Tell the one he won't believe. Here. You take this. You're gonna need it. Let's talk about this this, this scene. 
Um, this is a acting clinic by not only uh, Brando, but also, as you mentioned before, Rod Steiger. Yes, yes, yes. And to kind of set up the scene a little bit. So they know that uh, he's been like he's, he's basically been ratted out by Friendly's gang that he's been talking to Father Barry. He's been seen around with uh, with uh, Edie Doyle. And, you know, after what happened with Dugan, they don't they kind of have suspicions already that Terry might turn and go to the crime commission. So his uh, uh, Friendly wants his brother Charlie to uh, well, Terry's brother Charlie to convince him to not testify or take care of him. I mean, that's his own brother. And, you know, I love the scene where Charlie's trying to convince, you know, he's just a confused, confused kid, you know, and I love that whole back and forth that Lee J. Cobb and, uh, and Rod Steiger have in that scene. Just such a great scene. And so finally, like, they get in the car and basically Charlie's doing everything he can to convince Terry, please, like, take this job on the harbor. Like, don't say nothing. Don't do nothing. You know, and you'll be safe. You know, just take this job as like a like a like a manager type on the docks. You know, and then you'll be set. He's basically trying to beg him, "Don't make me do this." You know, and then Terry reminds Rod Steiger or Charlie, his brother, that you know of the time that he basically convinced him to throw the fight. Like, and then it was kind of alluded to in a scene where Terry was talking to the crime commissioner guy. You know, he's like, "I saw you in the garden against you know whoever that that fighter was." You know, I thought you had him. And like, I did have him. You know, and then he told him that he basically had to throw the fight for a. Uh, for, for John Friendly under his orders. And he kind of reminds his brother about that, right? And he kind of makes him feel guilty. You know, like, why did you stick up for me then? You know, I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. But instead, I'm just a, I'm a bum, which is what I am, you know? So, uh, God, man, such a great, like you said, acting click, you know, just, and I love, and I hate to get ahead of myself, but the aspect ratios of this film, there's three different aspect ratios that the Criterion Collection has for this film. And to watch it on the widescreen, which is the 185 by 1, where you get the super close of a Brando's face, you see the emotion on his face as he's giving that, that whole speech. It's like, wow. Amazing. So the I could have been a contender line, and I agree with everything you said, but the I could have been a contender line is, that's the big moment, right? Right. But what I actually like is a couple moments before that. when he's When Charlie pulls the gun on him and he says well you better make up your mind before we get to whatever madison avenue or whatever right yeah and and then brando gets this brando slash terry gets this look like oh oh come on really <laughs> like like not just not just like uh like he just gets so heartbroken it's like really you're my own brother he doesn't say this but the, his look conveys my own brother really my own brother, you're doing this to me, and then that's what spurs on this speech. That like, you, he was supposed to take care of him. He was supposed to be his older brother and protect him, and he ended up just using him. And you know, and he goes, "I had some bets down for you. You saw money." And he's like, "But that's not the point. I could have had class." And then he goes into it. You know, yeah. like it's it's that moment right before he goes into the line that I actually love the most. It's because that's when you see like the true pain on his face, like the, and 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 right before then, even whenever he realizes what's going on, like the when the sudden realization comes, because like, as we said, he's not a bright guy. When the sudden realization comes on, like, oh, I see what this is about, and it's my brother that's going to do it. Like, come on. But then, on top of that. The moment right after this, 
whenever the guilt finally gets to Charlie and Charlie like, all right, fine, get out of here, kid. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to, you know, you know, he, he decides not to kill him. But that's when Charlie realizes, well, it's my time to go. And that, that's when Steiger's acting comes in where he realizes I'm going to go die now. Because right. I'm saving I'm saving Terry, but beca- and now I'm gonna die. Yeah, that whole scene, like during that whole speech that that you know Terry's telling us about the Charlie, kind of see like the tears on Rod Steiger's face, you know, which is awesome acting. I think they said in the commentary that I think Kazana said that like Rod Steiger loved to cry, so he kind of had to like, keep him in check with that because he was doing it too much. But uh, you can see like the pain on his face as well, and you can see that like, kind of the realization that you know. I'm I'm done. You know, this is this is going to be it for me now. And he's hoping that it's not that his brothers and share his fate. But at that moment, like you can tell, he's thinking, "Uh, yeah, I'm I'm dead." So like he's kind of like bringing himself to accept that fact already. Yeah, uh, and what's even funnier is that uh, not funnier, but more interesting is that apparently on his close-ups, he wasn't even acting to to Brando. He's acting to Kazan because Brando wasn't. For whatever reason, yeah, like he, there's something about like his schedule, like yeah. he had to be out at a certain time. So yeah, so I mean that that even you know that even uh, is a more of a testament to, to Steiger's acting. Who um, the other his other great famous performance is uh, in uh, in the Heat of the Night, which you've, if you've never seen, is a great oh, film. Saw it during in college in one of one of my film classes. Oh, such a good film. Yes, it's such it is. a great film. Awesome, uh, and I believe he won the Oscar for that. Um, yes, he did. But, uh, yeah, it's a. I mean, he's done a lot more. He did Doctor Zhivago. He did a, a, a movie about Capone. He's done a lot more. But I mean, the, his two most famous roles probably on the waterfront and uh, in the heat of the night. So uh, you should guys to check that out. Um, so what's fun? What's interesting? Another little piece of trivia. Uh, did you come across that piece of trivia of who was originally supposed to play Terry Malloy? Uh, I believe. Well, they said that Sinatra was originally pegged, and that uh, and that Paul Newman, I think, read for the part when Marlon Brando was having doubts about taking it. But once he found out that Newman read for it, he was like, "Oh no, no, no I, I want the part. I want the part." So. Well, I, I was I was alluding to Sinatra, uh, yeah. and you can you see him? Like, I actually like Sinatra as an actor. He was actually he was a pretty good, decent actor, especially in The Manchurian Candidate. Was one of my favorite films. Yeah, uh, but. Is Terry Malone? Can you imagine him doing the "I could have been no, contender" speech? I, I, no way. It wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't no have worked. Way. Would not have been the same. That movie, I think, would. I don't think the film would have had the classic status it has now if it was Frank Sinatra in that role. Yeah, absolutely. Like you can't even picture it now. I mean, yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty. I but it. Marlon Brando is Terry Malone. That's it. like I can't even picture anybody else in that role. All right. So the other major role in the film, which we both I think really love. Mr. Lee J. Cobb. Lee J. Cobb role, the alpha, as John J. Friendly, I think, was his name. That's not even his real name in the movie. <laughs> Which you find out, I think, it's like Richard Skelly or something Yeah. at the end of the film. But, man, what a powerhouse. But now, Lee J. Cobb, for those who don't know, he was also in uh, another one of my favorite films, 12 Angry Men. Yep. Who played like the, uh, I, for- I forgot what, what juror number he was, but he was like the, the antagonist, the main antagonist of the film. The guy who kept giving, gi- saying, you know, the guy was guilty no matter what. He didn't change till the end. Wasn't but he like, 12? Wasn't he juror 12? I think, I think was... he was juror 12. I'm, I'm not sure on that, though. Because the number, I always get confused with the numbers. But, um, but yeah, man, those two films, like, he was an acting powerhouse. And the same thing here. Like, I love how, like, in the beginning, you see him very, very friendly with Terry. Because, you know, essentially, 
you know, John Friendly was like a father figure to Terry Malloy. And you kind of seen like horsing around the beginning, you know, which is what kind of brings the drama into Terry's decision, you know, because he's not just like betraying these mob guys. He's essentially betraying like people he's grew up with, like essentially his family. So that's what kind of adds to the to the drama of the film. And Lee J. Cobb just plays like that gritty crime boss to a T, man. I love it. He's another guy with charisma, too. And uh, I love I love Lee J. Cobb here. Yeah, so I had to look it up. He's juror number three. Uh, but yeah, number Lee three. J. Cobb, so good in this film. Uh, and yeah, he plays the he plays the main antagonist in Twelve Angry Men, uh, the guy that is the last one that Henry Fonda has to convince that the the guy is not guilty. Um, but in this film, as John Friendly, like I lo- like you mentioned it, I love that scene at the bar at the very beginning where he's just like everybody's buddy, everybody's friend. He clearly has like a. Uh, 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 Almost like a, a father-son relationship. Not even father-son, maybe more like an uncle, yeah. nephew kind of relationship. Like, ah, kid, come back. <laughs> he even, even said, like, here's a present from your Uncle John. Yeah, You exactly, know, when he gives him the you know? 50, you know? And I love the scene where they're kind of forcing around with, like, their play fighting. Because it's kind of like a foreshadowing to their real fight they're going to have at the end of the film. Right. So. And, and, and then, you know, in the same scene where he's, like, being so, like, you know chummy and, and he's like ah oh, he's a good kid here give him a job or he's not doing anything and he's just getting paid and sit on his butt you know and yeah. like then some he you know one of his like cronies kind of shorts him on some money and then you see how pissed off he can get too yes uh and uh you know he's he just plays this really great he's not even really all over the film he's only in a couple of like key scenes but he's he has this um his presence is all over the film. Like you can feel like his presence, the character's presence. And uh, Lee J. Cobb is just this kind of, he's such a heavy, you know what I mean? He's such a like menacing. You can buy this guy as this kind of corrupt, you know, crooked uh, union boss. Um, What I find interesting about the film is that Cobb is much more of kind of like a, a classic Hollywood actor. And he's going up against Brando, who's much more of a real like, uh, realist, you know, method actor. And I just find, like, the two acting styles, like, kind of combating each other really interesting. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of see that, you know, not only in the uh, the the opening scene with them together, you can kind of see that in the scene where, um, like, uh, Friendly's confronting, you know, Marlon Brando, Terry, about the, uh, the, the Dugan report, like, you know, like how you were supposed to report on, on, on the church meeting, you know, and now you have this Dugan guy, who has 38 pages with a testimony with the crime commission, you know, so he takes away the, the comfy, you know, loft job, you know, he's like, until you learn your lesson, you know, and then you also see the scene, like, at the end when they're about to fight, kind of the two, like, styles kind of clash, too, and it's, uh, it's very interesting, I, I agree with you. Yeah, and that, and that scene where he takes that job, the, the job away from him is, again, kind of pointing back to that, like, the relationship they have, it doesn't feel like a, I'm, I'm being a mean boss kind of thing. It, it feels more of like the, this is tough love. I want to teach you a lesson, you know, but ultimately like you're still one of us or whatever. Right. So, yeah. it, and it's that kind of, you know, affection that, you know, mutual affection that they have for each other and that Terry has with his brother that like when they, when they turn on him, when they stab him in the back, it, actually matters you know it's not yeah you know it actually it gives the film you know some 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 heft to it you know exactly um and you know so yeah let's talk about that fight at the end i think that fight at the end 
Well, before we get that, the my my the one scene we did not talk about that I actually also love is the the reveal of Char of Charlie's body. Oh yes. What, oh man. Bec- what's great about that is is that because it's they're running down that alley and there's that truck uh, Malo- Terry Malloy and and even Marie Saint are running down that alley and there's that truck kind and, of and not, not down. to cut you off, but or remember like right before this, like it's 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 kind of funny. Uh, essentially, like Marlon Brando commits a crime by breaking into. Edie's house and he kind of forces himself on her and she just takes it and it's just hmm I don't know how that scene would play out to feminists yeah, probably but... <laughs> in this day and age probably uh, not very well received you know but I mean this is the 50s it's the 50s yeah so, you, so you know. gotta kind of go with it uh, but uh, and then you know breaks in and he, he basically forces himself on her and then he gets called out the same way he called out Joey yes, and exactly. he decides he has to go out and you know whether it's a sense of guilt, whether it's a sense of duty, whether it's or whether he's just dumb, like he goes out and follows the same you know path that Joey did, um, and then you know he gets you know they they chase them down this alley with this truck, and what's great about the the reveal is, I mean this they weren't making like Kazan is like in a class of his own in the, at this point in time because you know again most movies at the time were being made on sound stages for the most part and rarely on location shoots unless it was a western it was rarely on location shoots and uh it, you know you he you didn't have shots like this so they the the truck is barely done them they get out of the way just in time and as the truck passes you see the the headlights kind of reveal the body right yes and then but you get a glimpse of it, and then that's when you see kind of Brando kind of slowly walking up to it and realizing what he's seeing. And it's such a great image of him just hanging there on the hook. It's kind of grisly. I mean, it's, for, it's not not you don't there's no blood. It's it's you know it's 1954, but it's um uh it's for the time it's a it's really violent. Yeah, it's yeah, a violent... it's a very very emotional scene too. Now, essentially, like you know, watching to like take his brother off of the hook, laying him down, and you know getting the gun that he gave him earlier and he's like, you know, they're going to pay for it with their skulls, you know? And, you know, it, it, you see Terry and you see Edie together, like, you know, kind of mourning Charlie. And, and then you, you think about, Oh, you know, she lost her brother. He now lost his brother. So now they kind of have that in common. Now that kind of, they have like a shared like grief, you know? Right. That kind of brings them more together. Um, then of course he, he he runs off to the bar to try to kill friendly, and then uh, Father Barry has to kind of get it. He's like, "You want to get them? Testify. That's how you get them." Um, which of course leads to the final confrontation at the end after he he testifies against Johnny Friendly, uh, and he goes down to the docks like he's gonna confront him there too because he's got to just do it one more. And that I think is the most Hollywood portion of the movie. Yeah, where he like confronts them in this kind of very Hollywood kind of way. And they have this big fist fight. And, and like you were saying earlier, just kind of these two people clashing from these two different generations of people, you know, of actors. And, 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 and uh, But, you know, he gets that great speech. Hey, Friendly! John Friendly, come out of there! Friendly! Come on out of there! You want another trouble with you? You think it makes you a big man if you give the answers? Well, at the right time, I'll catch up with you. Be thinking about that. Now, go on, beat it. Don't push your luck. Wait a minute, you. You take them heaters away from you and you're nothing. You know that? You talk yourself in the river. You take the good goods away and the kickbacks and the shakedown cabbage and the pistol arrows and you're nothing. 
Your guts is all in your wallet and your trigger finger, you know that? You ratted on us, Terry. From where you stand, maybe, but I'm standing over here now. I was ratting on myself all them years. I didn't even know it. Come on. You give it to Joey, you give it to Dugan, you give it to Charlie, it was one of your own. You think you're God Almighty, but you know what you are? Come on. You're a cheap, lousy, dirty, stinking mug. And I'm glad what I've done to you. You hear that? I'm glad what I've done. And I'm gonna keep on doing it till I get Come on! Come on! that great speech where you know he you know he just calls him out and then goads him into coming out and that's when they have that fight and it's just you know now it, right it, before this though right right before this though, I, I gotta i gotta bring this up i love the uh well actually even before that um you have the scene where like you know he testifies and he becomes kind of the pariah you know kind of like uh kazan did you know to some people after he testified um when he uh goes up to the to the loft and he sees you know little tommy slaughtered all the all the oh, pigeons right, yes a pigeon for a pigeon he throws his the i forgot what his name was but he throws like the his favorite pigeon at him you know and he goes to check the loft and they're all dead and oh that's such a heartbreaking scene because at that point you, you're like you know like was it worth the risk you know like like he's become like the social pariah like nobody wants to be anywhere near him you know all, all the pigeons he liked are dead and then at that point that's when he says you know i, I gotta face him and I love, and this is what I was going to bring up originally, I love the kind of dopey reversal, as they called it in the commentary, of Edie, where at, the whole film, she's trying to, trying to convince him, you got to do the right thing, you got to do the right thing. But now when he wants to do the right thing, she's like, oh, no, you can't, you know, got to look out for yourself. So it's kind of like a funny, like, little kind of reversal or back stance that she takes now. You yeah. know, first, you know, you know, you got you to testify, you got to do it. And now, you know, don't do it. So it's, it's just kind of funny. It is a it is a little bit of a kind of a cheat there because she's because she's she, she kind of slips into like conventional um, conventional uh, you know female role in the fifties you know what I mean like yeah but but you know it, it, it's it's a minor quibble for me um, yeah no, no I mean it is for me too I just find it funny That's yeah <laughs> it is funny because again it takes you it, it leads it does lead us into that fight where he does the. Uh, um, he does like, and I'm glad what I'd done to you. You know that that, <laughs> yeah. that whole speech. I love that, that speech. That badass speech. Yeah. yeah. And then they, you know, have the fight, and uh, and uh, he still, you know, gets up and he walks like a man. And he's, you know, he's, and then the 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 union boss at the end is like, "All right, let's go to work." And then that's the last image of the movie. Yeah. Well, yeah. The last you see uh, Lee J. Cobb. You're like, you know, I'll be back. You know, I'll remember each and every one of you. I'll be back. Like he just left standing there, kind of defeated but the kind of sad thing about the real story about this is that yeah lee j Cobb will be back and uh you know the uh you know the the crime on the waterfront even after this film you know premiered really had no effect on the goings on there and it continued for uh, another couple of decades before it was finally kind of clamped down right um and then oh an interesting side note uh that kid that threw the pigeon at him. Did you see that special feature where that kid was just kind of this random kid that they random found? Random kid, like, on the street, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. On the street. And uh, 
and you know after the movie and it's the only thing he ever did as far as movies go and then after the movie he you know whenever he became a an adult he ended up being a, a dock worker himself yeah and he, and he talked a little bit about yeah nothing really changed it's still uh it's still pretty crooked yeah <laughs> it's like i can't really say anything but you know it's still pretty crooked <laughs> Yeah, the, the only difference, like, and, and this is also from the other feature about the uh, the waterfront crime uh, back then, was that, I mean, even though, like, the people that were in power back then, technically, like, that whole group is still in power today, you know, like, their numbers are smaller. Like, like in the time of the film came out, I think that that union was, like, at maybe 12,000, like, 20,000 members, while today it's almost, like, 1,000 members, 1,200 members. So, like, their influence has dwindled, even if, like, the goings on is like you know, like you said, nothing has changed. So, a question for you as a as a as a resident, like how true does this ring? Does this ring to like? Obviously, you're not a dock worker, but um, you know, how true does this ring to like your kind of experience as a Jersey resident, as someone who might be around those, you know, that that kind of uh, environment. Well, I kind of thought about it, too, as I was watching it, and when I realized it was New Jersey, because I thought it was set in New York, and then when I found that it was in Hoboken, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense, because, you know, Hoboken is right on the harbor, and, you know, I, I honestly thought it would be, like, Jersey City, or even, like, Port Newark has, has a little has a little port, Elizabeth is a port town for uh, for New York as well. Um, honestly, thinking about it, watching the film, and thinking about, like, my own experience, like they even brought it up in, one, in the special feature about the waterfront crime. They talked about how like now today, it, like once the docking work became like the whole crate industry, like that's when like the kind of the dock worker, like I guess trade kind of started dwindling down and thus like the power of like the ILA and all those unions that were corrupt. Um, but I remember like as a kid, like driving past like Port Newark and Elizabeth and seeing like the crates stacked up. And, you know, all the port towns have that now. Like you see like that whole like stack of crates. Like I remember, uh, Captain Phillips. That's a, that's a weird film to bring up right now. But Captain Phillips in the begin, in the beginning, excuse me, when he uh, it was about to set sail, and like they're stacking all the crates, and you see like just rows and rows of crates. That's basically how it is now. You know, if you go down to Port Newark, and I'm sure Hoboken's the same way too. But uh, I mean, I've never really been down on the docks like that. You know, ever. You know, I've been like to the piers in New York, but I've never really been to like where like the dock workers would actually like be you know so in that respect it didn't really have an effect on me but i just remembered like just passing through the docks as a kid and seeing like the the workers and the cranes and the, and the, the crates all stacked one on top of the other so yeah <laughs> that's my experience with that that's interesting uh, so so it, it feels authentic to you yeah yes it does all right so last uh topic i want to discuss and you already alluded to a little bit the aspect ratio so um on the waterfront, the Criterion Edition has three different aspect ratios. One is the uh, the um, one six six to one. The other one is the one eight five to one, and the third one is the one three three. One three three. So you've watched. I actually did not get a chance to see all three aspect ratios in preparation for this. I only watched the. I saw the one six six and the one eight five. I didn't watch the one three three. So. Like what? What? How do you feel about like? How do you feel about the the different ratios and and what do you think about okay, releasing so, them in this format? Right. So a couple couple things. Um, number one, uh, if you're more into like appreciating background, appreciating cinematography and like shots, the one three three by one is like 
probably the one you're going to like the most because you're able to see more of the shots of New York Harbor, of the Empire State Building, of the New York skyline. You're able to see more of like those like really nice, you know, cinematography shots with that aspect ratio. The 185 by one focuses more on kind of close-ups. So like, especially when you see like, you know, the, I could have been a contender scene and you see like, it really zooms in on Brando's face and you see the emotion of that character and what he's going through as he's, you know, giving that speech. And it just like kind of sucks you in even more than it already did. You know, and it, it just feels more powerful when you're just, he's right in your face and he's kind of spilling his guts. So if you're into like close-ups, if you're into like seeing like characters' emotions, like especially like you know the facial expressions and seeing how that helps convey their character more, then the one eight five by one would definitely be your aspect ratio of choice. The one six six is like the European aspect ratio, which is kind of like kind of a mixture of both. Like in the one eight five, which is more widescreen, some stuff gets cut off from the top and the bottom, but the one six is kind of brings like the that shot or like that hand or whatever it is that got cut off it brings it back in for example there's a scene at the beginning when uh terry's with john friendly in the bar where like they're horsing around and all that and then you see this it's the scene where terry's counting the money and after like he says oh i lost count they start laughing at him he grabs like a cue ball on the pool table and he starts like kind of throwing it around on the 185 by one version you don't see what he's throwing you just think like he's just moving his hand but like on the one one six six by one you actually see that he's kind of tossing the cue ball around so you know little it's kind of like a mixture of both in a sense it's kind of like the uh the uh i guess the average one that one would kind of gravitate to like if you're just like a casual movie go where you'd be just better off with the one six six by one but like each aspect ratio you know serves their own purpose that's what i love about this too yeah i actually um my favorite one is the 185 just because it's widescreen and it's gonna be i'm going to uh, always prefer widescreen to anything else. Right. Like, and I think it looks the best. No, no, no. I mean, I would tend to agree with you. So the 166, personally, for me, is kind of has, like, that nice balance of both. So for me, that's the one I like the most. But I love the 133 as well, just for the fact that, like, you're able to see more of the shots. You know, and more of the, the cinematography just pops more in that aspect ratio as well. Yeah, and, and, and on top of that, um, so you can see all these three different aspect ratios, uh, in uh, on the Criterion set, but what we didn't talk about also is that just the transfer looks gorgeous. Oh my goodness! It's yes, so, it, it's so crystal clear on the on this Blu-ray. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you, with it's Criterion, so you know a lot of people listening to it are like, you know, it's Criterion, like enough said, right? But it's just we can't <laughs> express enough how awesome this transfer is that they put out. Is just I don't think there'll ever be a better transfer. Like even in like I don't want to say like 30 years in the future because maybe we'll have better technology by then. But at least for this era, for this time period, no no one's going to put out a better transfer than Criterion here for this film, especially this film. Just absolutely gorgeous. And you know, obviously, you and I are both big Criterion nerds, so we're always going to expound the the uh, <laughs> the benefits of getting Criterion on uh, on a. Um... On Blu-ray. Well, it's uh, July. You know, we have that sale coming up. That if is it's not true. already going on, so that is true. I have a, a few titles in mind already. I have to pick up. Yeah, uh, Doctor. They did this they release Doctor Strange Love. Um, that or, yeah, the uh, last week I think they did right. Yeah, or, Doctor Strange Love just came out. 
Um, something else. So it's one of the big ones on the horizon, right? I gotta uh, get. I gotta get Manchurian Candidate, the player, that one, and there's a couple other ones I can't think of. Right I, I pre-ordered the player. Um, you know, they have. Uh, uh, they're reissuing Carnival of Souls, which I love that movie. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever seen it. Um, Blood Simple. That's the big one I was thinking of. Blood. Yes, Simple. That, but that one's not till September, I think. That's well, not yeah. That's not till September. But I think the sale uh, will work if you pre-order. No. Uh, well, it's the Barnes and Noble sale, so I think it has to be in in store. Uh, oh, yeah, I think I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that, but it might have to be like in store or like in stock items online. So. Okay. Well, Blood Simple, Cat People's also coming out. The Decalogue yes. is also coming out. And, sure and, he, and here's what's what's funny too. Like you when um, Dress to Kill came out, you were like, you know, that's kind of a trashy film to be Criterion. Well, they're coming out with the two Valley of the Dolls films, and I'm that's like, true. That's that's a little. I mean, yeah, those are pretty trashy too. Yeah, um, so that's, it's no, kind of surprising. When I said when I said uh, uh, Blood or not Blood Simple, um, Dress, Dress to, to Kill. kill um, it was trashy. I, it's not necessarily a, a, an insult. I just it just seems like a little lowbrow, uh, but it, it almost seems like they're kind of working their way through some of uh, De Palma's uh, not like big movies. Because I know Sisters and Body is Body Double on there. I don't think it is. Uh, uh, don't quote me on that, but I don't remember seeing it there. Okay, but uh, speaking of De Palma, I know we're getting a little bit away from On the Waterfront, but uh, at some point I, I got to see that De Palma documentary that's starting. To yes, I saw out. the trailer for it when I went to see Lobster. But and, uh, but uh, yeah, me too. And and but the thing is, I kind of want to catch up on some of the stuff uh, that I haven't seen of his before I go watch that because you know there's, I got a couple gaps. You know, I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen Sisters, I haven't seen Body Double, um, and uh, you know I kind of want to catch up on a couple of those before uh, before I go see that documentary. But I've heard good things. Yes, I have too, and I, I'm very, very looking forward to that. All right, so uh, we're going to close out on the waterfront here. So as always, I, I kind of like to point out where you can watch it. Uh, you can watch it for digital rental and purchase on the normal uh, streaming services, iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, and Vudu. You can digitally rent and purchase it there. Um, and I be- I'm not sure if uh, Hulu has it on the – because Hulu has a deal with the Criterion Collection where they do stream some of the Criterion yes. movies on there. But I'm not – I did not research if on the waterfront is one of those because it's not the whole collection. It's just kind of certain ones. So yeah, um, even movies that aren't even on Blu-ray, they have yeah. on that streaming, which is kind of cool. And that's usually a, an indication, like, okay, we're gonna put these on Blu-ray at some point. But because yeah. uh, I remember they had uh, the pretty much the entire Chaplin collection streaming on Hulu before they started releasing them on Blu-ray. So uh, they had because they had um, the Gold Rush and City Lights and Modern Times up before they actually released them. So, um, but, but my my encouragement though, it's July. Go buy your, go get yourself a yearly Barnes and Noble membership. It's not expensive. It's just twenty five dollars for the year, for the whole year, and go get yourself the on the waterfront Criterion for fifty percent off, plus ten percent off if you go actually into the store and buy it. So sixty percent off, you know, this month, you know, because it's absolutely worth it, absolutely worth it. Yeah. Uh, and then that was the other way to watch it is uh, the Criterion Blu-ray, which we highly recommend. And I'm sure there's other non-Criterion DVDs out there, but don't buy those. The Criterion, if you're gonna buy the film, buy the Criterion version. Uh, otherwise, you can uh, rent or purchase it on those uh, services I mentioned before. So on the waterfront, uh, I get to high recommend from both of us, I, I believe. Yes, I- of course, absolutely, it does. <laughs> So now let's go to the random movie generator to find out what our next film will be. 
Alright, RMG, let's let's do this. Okay, here we go. Alright. And our next film is uh our it's gonna be our first western on this show. Ooh, I'm excited. And it is Please, please, please. I, I, I think I know we're going with this, but I'm going to cross my fingers. And I'm going to hope you're going to say the one I'm thinking of. Right well, I now, hope I don't ahead. disappoint you, but it is the uh, John Ford movie, The Searchers. Oh, okay. It's not the one I was thinking of, but good enough. Good enough. Searchers is awesome. Uh, what, what movie were you thinking of, by the way? I was thinking of High Noon. High Noon is on the list. It's in the movie generator. It just hasn't come up yet. But okay. High Noon okay. is one of my favorites. But so th- eventually, yes. Yes. But, but the next Searchers time, is still good. it will be The Searchers. All right. All right. So that's is. Uh, so look forward to that on our next episode. Um, so that that'll wrap it up for this uh, edition of the Essential Films Podcast. Uh, you can find me at the at essentialfilmspodcast dot com, uh, where we've got a variety of different articles up right now, um, including uh, the one hundred best science fiction films and uh, a look back at the year in two thousand nine in movies. Uh, you can email me at essentialfilmspodcast at gmail dot com, and please like the Essential Films on Facebook and follow at Essential Films on Twitter. Please like, rate, and review, and subscribe to us on iTunes if you like this show uh, to get us a little bit more uh, uh, visibility out there and a little bit more people uh, eyes on our eyes, I guess I should say ears, on our little podcast here because uh, we want to keep it going. Uh, Mark, where can we find you? All right, so you can find me on Twitter at SportsGuy515, and uh, I'll put in a little plug for our other show, Forest Perspective, we kind of talk about more modern films on the show. We're good. I think the last episode we did, we did a review of um, The Lobster. We did a review of X-Men Apocalypse. And then we have a future show coming up where we review like Finding Dory, Independence Day Resurgence, and Conjuring 2, and some of the more like modern films that are in theaters right now. Um, there's also a Twitter for Force Perspective. It's at FP Movie Podcast. You can follow us there. And uh, you can find the show uh, streaming on iTunes as well as well as on geekdom101.com. And uh, we also did a couple retrospectives recently on uh, uh, what we call the My Favorite Film series. We did Taxi Driver, and we did your favorite movie, Scarface. Absolutely, which is a very fun time. I love talking about that film any chance I get, and we we did a great show with with, uh, Big D from Geekdom 101, so definitely check that one out as well. So we will probably, and those two movies, by the way, are in the Random Movie Generator, uh, they haven't come up yet, but we will probably talk about them on this show as well at some point, uh, whenever their number is called. The fact that it's on, uh, Scarface is on there makes me very happy. Oh yeah, of course it's. On. I, I I had a feeling you might leave it out, but <laughs> no, no, of course it's on there. It might take a while to get to it, especially yeah. since we just talked about it. But uh, we'll get to it at some point. Uh, that'll do it for us uh, for um, the Essential Films podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Join us next time for John Ford's The Searcher. So that's your homework. Go out, watch The Searchers. Uh, it's an excellent film and probably the best John Wayne film uh, out there. Uh, it's, pro- it's it's debatable, but that's probably the best one. Um, and uh, yeah, enjoy the movie, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And until next time, we could have been contenders. We could have been somebodies, but we're just bums. See you next time. <laughs>
Hello, folks. This is Adolfo Acosta thanking you for listening to the Essential Films Podcast. To help keep the Essential Films Podcast and the Essential Films website up and running, please consider donating to help keep the lights on. All donors will get a shout-out on a future episode of the show and the warm feeling of knowing you helped me out. Thank you in advance. To donate, visit EssentialFilmsPodcast.com and click Donate on the top right-hand side of the page. Thank you very much.